This morning we're going to be celebrating a visible reminder that God has given us, the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about then an invisible representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't see him. Some people can see him right now in heaven, but we can't see him here, although we know his presence. Then a visible relationship. We can see in our own lives the relationship that we have with him. And then an indivisible family of relatives, as we are all members of one body, or we might say of one family in the Lord. So we begin with a visible reminder. We might ask ourselves the question, what is the need for a reminder? We're pretty sharp. We can remember things. But it seems that uh, the need for a reminder is both a universal one and a critical one. We have reached the number of sticky notes now in a year of 6,500,000,000. That's almost one for everybody in the world to have a little reminder that they can put on their refrigerator or wherever they put it. And you can get sticky notes now in 27 different sizes, 57 colors, and 20 fragrances. So you can have a sniffy note as well as a sticky note. And the patent, I think, has run out uh, from 3M Company, but now they're just proliferating all over everywhere. It must be a very popular item. In fact, 3M Company generated revenues of $3.47 billion dollars in 2009 in their consumer and office supplies sales group. And that would include posted products and pop-up note dispensers. It appears like a lot of people need reminders these days. God, our Creator, knew that we would be creatures known, uh, known for forgetting and negligence, prone to forget things. So he graciously provided in the scripture many things that would help us to remember, to remember the important things that he has done for us. You can think back when God's people were becoming a nation and they, were, they had the people down in Egypt in bondage and then they were brought out of Egypt and they were given land and a government, the Ten Commandments and other laws they were moving toward that time, and they were given by God through Moses some instructions that would keep them from forgetting what God has done for them. Do you keep a record of what God has done for you? A written record? A record on the computer? Because if you think back to the year 2001 and this particular day on that year, August 5th, what was God doing for you on that day? Well, he might have been doing something pretty big that you could celebrate as you think back about it. It might have been something that you could share with your children who are now much older or with your grandchildren. So God reminds us in Deuteronomy 6:12, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And Moses is just getting warmed up in Deuteronomy 8 beginning in verse 13. And this passage would probably apply to us in the United States of America very well. 
And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. Is that not what we are saying in the United States today? If we have this president, he's responsible for the wealth, and if he's not having as much wealth as we want, we need to get rid of him and get one who would give us the wealth. And yet it is God who has given us these things. How can the Israelites forget all of that? Three days out from the Red Sea, you remember they ran out of water, and they began to grumble and complain. And then God began teaching them, and one generation had to be taught for 40 years until all of that generation who lacked faith that God wanted them to have died off out in the wilderness. Well, how could we forget all that God has done for us? I trust that we don't. We want to be reminded. One of God's finest visible reminders is the rainbow. Now, the rainbow is not an ordinance like the Lord's Supper or baptism, but it is a sign. And this is a sign of God's covenant, of God's promise that He is never going to destroy the earth again by flood. So you may be in the middle of Katrina with the winds blowing and the waters rising, but you have that promise that it's not going to be a worldwide destruction by flood. Now, I know that those who have a naturalistic worldview would say, what's the big deal about a rainbow? It's just the refraction of light through the prism of raindrops. It can be explained by natural forces. Yes, but God set in motion those natural forces. And in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3, God ties this promise to something that he's going to be doing next in the history of the world. That passage begins by telling us that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they will say, hey, where is this second coming that you're telling us about? Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But we're told in the Scripture that everything did not go on as it did since the beginning of creation. There was a flood that changed a lot of things. And now we pick up with what Peter is saying. They deliberately forget that long ago by God's Word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. But the same, by the same Word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Now for God's people, the rainbow is a reminder of the second coming. He destroyed the world by flood at that time. He is going to destroy the world by fire when He comes again. 
And there are a lot of questions that we might ask about that, but when we see the rainbow, we need to take a moment and listen and maybe hear that rainbow whisper, yes, He's coming again. Be prayed up. Be ready. Well, in today's visible sign, the Lord's Supper, why do we eat a little crumb of cracker and a thimbleful of the fruit of the vine? Instead of the Lord's Supper, why don't we have the Lord's Parade or the Lord's Picnic or something else that we could kind of get into a little better? Well, many people have suggested that we don't even need a reminder like that. And some people do it in other ways with Coke and cookies or whatever might be available. Um, I don't know about that. But God has given a prescription for us Why did he do it? John Calvin comments on that passage from Genesis that talks about the rainbow as God's sign to us that he's not going to flood the world again. He says, It it appears to some absurd that faith should be sustained by such helps. He's talking about helps like the Lord's Supper or the rainbow. But they who speak thus do not in the first place reflect on the great ignorance and imbecility of our souls, nor do they secondly ascribe to the working of the secret power of the Spirit that praise which is due. It is the work of God alone to begin and to perfect faith, but He does it by such instruments as He sees good, the free choice of which is His own power. So God decided that we would have the Lord's Supper and that we would eat these elements, and that that should communicate something to us. We see that in the Scripture. Matthew gives the account. Mark gives the account. Luke gives an account of it, and the Apostle Paul. In Luke, we see this do in remembrance of me, the same thing Paul repeats in 1 Corinthians 11, our passage this morning. The Lord's Supper is a continual reminder of Christ's death. And we're given this simple ceremony so that we do not forget. Let me read from J.C. Ryle's book, Practical Religion. An Anglican bishop who lived in the 1800s and wrote some things that are for our benefit. Of all the facts of his earthly ministry, none are equal in importance to that of Christ's death. It was the great satisfaction for man's sin which had been appointed in God's covenant from the foundation of the world. It was the great atonement of almighty power to which every sacrifice of animals from the fall of man continually pointed. It was the great end and purpose for which the Messiah came into the world. It was the cornerstone and foundation of all man's hopes and his hope of pardon and peace with God. In short, Christ would have lived and taught and preached and prophesied and wrought miracles in vain if He had not crowned all by dying for our sins as our substitute. His death was our life. His death was a payment of our debt to God. Without His death, we should have been of all creatures most miserable. No wonder that an ordinance was specifically appointed to remind us of our Savior's death. It's the very thing of which poor, weak, sinful man needs to be continually reminded. End of quote. And we would add to that that Christ validated 
his death as payment for our sins through the resurrection. An equally important thing for us to remember. Now we come to an invisible representative. Do you like the representative form of government? In this case we're discussing here, we didn't really have any choice. These are familiar passages to us, Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. And then skipping to Romans 5.18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Now, let me stop right there and say, obviously, it brings life for men who have validated Christ as their representative. And the next verse explains that, verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, that's Christ, the many were made righteous. Well, the many were made righteous even before the foundation of the world. They will be made righteous because God had planned that. There was an agreement that God the Son made with God the Father. And that agreement included the fact that God the Son would be our representative and act on our behalf, even as Adam did. This is an agreement that is referred to in the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah, as the Council of Peace. There's the agreement, and here is the scripture. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Peace not only between the offices of priest and king, but also peace between God the Son and God the Father, as they have determined this plan of salvation that will save us from our sins. Now, God required some things of the Son if He were going to be surety and representative of the people. Surety refers to a person that takes upon himself the legal obligations of someone else. First, the Son would have to take on a human nature with all of the pain that that entails and be born of a woman. Second, he would have to put himself under the law and keep the law perfectly in order that he would be able to pay the penalty for sin. We can't have an unrighteous sacrifice. We need to have a, a righteous sacrifice. And of course, when Christ takes away our sin, we noted in our study of justification that he gives us his righteousness. We'll look at that verse in just a moment. And then that Christ would apply his perfect record to the account of those he represented, those who had faith in him, and then that he would sanctify them by sending his Holy Spirit. And here is 
here is the verses from the Old Testament that talk about the king on his throne. Psalm 2.6, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill in Zion. This refers back to the Zechariah passage. Psalm 110, verse 1, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And then even in the New Testament, the angel said to Mary, The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Christ as king rules with all power and authority. Christ as our high priest represents us with God. He presented his own body as the sacrifice, the end-all sacrifice that would take away that sacrificial system and provide for us the one-time sacrifice forever. And then Christ as the prophet is God's representative with us. The words that he speaks are true. So when Christ did this great work on the cross, on the cross, he makes it possible for us to be clothed with his righteousness. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now when God makes an agreement, he gives some promises to go along with that agreement. He promised Christ that he would prepare a body for him, for this human nature. Hebrews 10.5, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And that's what we will be remembering in the Lord's Supper this morning, that body that was bruised and broken on our behalf to pay for the penalty of what we had done wrong. Then the Father would support the Son in his performance of the work even as God has promised to support us in what he has called us to do. We see a prediction of that through the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach the good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Sometimes we don't think of that, a passage like that as applying to ourselves but certainly figuratively it can. And that's what Christ came to do and he was empowered by the Heavenly Father to accomplish his mission. Next, he would deliver the Son from the power of death and seat him at his right hand with all power and authority. Acts 2.26 is a quote from Psalm 16 in the Old Testament. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also shall abide in hope because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades. Or in the Old Testament, Sheol, the place of the dead. Christ died for our sin when he was on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. Nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness in thy presence. And that's where Christ is now, in the presence of the Father, where there is great joy. And then the Father would enable the Son to send this Holy Spirit who would be with us as our comforter, our counselor, 
and our guide. And we see that in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another counselor, that He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and shall be in you. Now, a person, we we don't hear much about this kind of person in our country because we have a little different system of going about things, but in other countries, you would hear of someone who is an ombudsman. An ombudsman. And an ombudsman is a trusted intermediary between a government and a person or a group of persons. You might say he's the citizen's defender. He's the representative of the people. Christ is our ombudsman. He represents the people with God's divine government. God's divine law had been broken. And when the law is broken, someone has to answer for that. But the only way we could answer for it is to spend eternity separated from Christ in torment. There are only two destinations, we're told, in the Scripture. So God decides to make this agreement with His Son, the Ombudsman, who represents us, and He also is our mediator. That's what an Ombudsman does. He resolves differences through mediation. And you're familiar with the passage in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between, and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So here is Christ, the King, who rules over all things now. He's also the priest who has offered Himself as the sacrifice for us. He's the high priest whom we go through as we pray, the reason we pray in Jesus' name. And He also speaks to us through the Scripture because He is the truth. And He brings the truth from God as He fulfills the offices of prophet priest, and king. So here's a pretty good deal. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He is the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation means satisfaction. If someone ran into your car and smashed the rear end, they would need to make satisfaction to you for that. So Christ, as our mediator, may our advocate, made satisfaction to God. Now that's a pretty good deal if you happen to be a sinner. And of course we all qualify for that. Now how would we validate that Christ is our representative? We might say, yes, I would like for Christ to be my representative if that's what we get out of it, eternal life and abundant life here on this earth. But how do we validate that? We validate it through faith and through faith alone. As we come to God, we must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And we do that by faith. We validate that Christ is our representative and that He is duly qualified, appointed, and is acting even now as our mediator. Again, a very familiar passage. 
by faith and only by faith. Hebrews 7, 25. But because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. If Christ is your mediator this morning, there is rest, spiritual rest, irregardless of what may be going on about you. There is trust, and there are good works. To pay the ombudsman? No, we don't pay for anything with good works. Good works flow out of a heart of gratitude for what God has done for us. Now, if you uh, have validated Christ as your representative, how would you testify to that fact to others? How could they look at your life and see Christ? They might be able to look at your life and see some things that are different, and even some things that might be considered by the world odd. But remember, if they're going to know that it's because of Christ, you're going to have to tell them about it. You're going to have to share the gospel with them. Well, we might testify this morning, confirming that Christ is our representative by partaking in the Lord's Supper. That would be one way that we would testify. Or in the ordinance of baptism. We have the Lord's Supper and baptism as the ordinances that are prescribed, we believe, in Scripture for our testimony. So we come to a visible relationship, communion with Christ. The word communion means close association or perhaps fellowship. We see that in 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in 1 John 1.3, That which we have seen and heard we declare unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Again, as we're talking, we see the interplay of the persons of the Trinity in everything that's going on here. So how could you enjoy some good fellowship with someone? Well, we know the answer to that. We have a covered dish luncheon. We take a meal together. Uh, next Sunday, I believe, is the Sunday for our covered dish luncheon over in the fellowship hall. And that is a good time for fellowship. But who are those who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Well, first, before the meal, I need to understand God's plan of salvation. How God provided this substitute for my sin. Not a substitute penalty, mind you, but a substitute person. Christ was substituted on the cross for my spending eternity away from God in hell. So I must realize that plan of salvation, that it's Jesus who was punished instead of me. But then I need to accept that plan as my own. It's something personal. I have invested in it. I have realized that I am the sinner and that Christ died for me. And it's not just some generic religion thing, oh, well, we're the Christian religion. We have this cross and this altar and so forth. Uh, it's not that. It's a personal thing. It's not about a religion as such, a way of man seeking God. It's about a relationship that we would have with Him. 
Now, the plan is not intended as a fire insurance policy, although I fear that many may see the plan as that. Oh, I believe in God. Oh, yeah, Christ died for me. But then there would be no evidence of that. They might not be moving toward Christ in their lives, but moving toward the world or the flesh or even toward the devil. He's pretty risky. He comes on as an angel of light. And then third, according to the Scripture, it's not something we do to earn salvation, but I need to be demonstrating that these things are true in my life. And we've said that many times. Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever claims to be in Christ must walk as Jesus did. So if we really want to give a testimony, that visible relationship with Christ, then we'll be living the way Christ lived. And we'll stumble around and get off track because we're not perfect like Christ was, but the power of the Holy Spirit is such that He convicts us when we get off base and brings us back onto the way. And we can walk with Him in the fullness of the light that He gives. So that third thing is, if I've accepted the plan, I need to be living like I have accepted the plan in my life. 1 John 1.6, if we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, most people say, oh, I'm not walking in darkness. But be careful, because sometimes the darkness is camouflaged as the light, even as the enemy of our souls. Now, let's ask the question before we begin. What do I get out of the Lord's Supper? If I participate in this ceremony, what do I get out of it? Well, when we receive the bread and the fruit of the vine, the elements symbolize the sacrificial and saving merit that Christ's body and blood have purchased. He is spiritually present with us during this time in a special way when we come to the Lord's table in a worthy manner. So that's the reason we read that passage so that we might examine our hearts and see if there's anything there that would be grievous to God's Spirit. Because if there is, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you have accepted the plan into your life personally and you are living for Christ and you have a clear conscience with regard to what's in your heart, then the Lord's Supper would be for you. And if you don't qualify for that in the next few moments, you certainly might qualify by coming to Him, expressing your need, asking for His forgiveness, and His filling of His Holy Spirit in your life. Now, we've seen a visible reminder of an invisible representative and the visible relationship that we can have with Him But now we come to the last category, an indivisible family of relatives, communion or fellowship with other believers in the body. No more one nation indivisible, but one body or one family indivisible, the body of Christ. 
people out of every kindred and tongue and tribe and nation. People from all over the world, if they were present today, would be celebrating the Lord's Supper here with us. They probably are celebrating wherever they are. And that's one big difference that God made in the New Testament. He fulfilled those promises that light is going to the Gentile. And now we are all one family. Not one nation, but one family. Christ said something unusual when on occasion there was a great crowd of people there and his mother and his brothers came and somebody said, hey, your mom's here. And he didn't say this to be rude to his mom, but he wanted everyone to understand everyone to understand for whosoever shall do the will of my father which is in heaven the same is my brother and sister and mother and we're reminded in Galatians six ten, and as we therefore have opportunity let us do good unto all men especially unto them which are of the household of faith we're all members of one body we had better act like it how does one recognize a family member those who come to the table, then by their attitudes, and by their actions, and by the words that flow out of our mouths. So I would read as we close from Charles Hodge, great theologian from Princeton back when that uh, seminary taught the Bible. He says, thus the apostle says, all who come to the Lord's table are one body. They are one united company of worshipers of the same Savior, each united to Him as the living head, and therefore united to others as members of the same body. Preparation for the Lord's Supper in this aspect requires, first, the recognition of the fact that all Christians are brethren, that they're intimate union with each other in virtue of their common union with Christ. It's signified and professed in coming to the Lord's table. The exclusion, on the one hand, of all feelings of inconsistent with this fellowship of the saints, of all malice, of all envying, bitterness, and so forth. And on the other hand, the exercise of the opposite sentiments of love, mutual confidence, and consideration, and sympathy. The fixed purpose always to act toward our fellow Christians as toward those who are united by the tenderest, most intimate, and most enduring bonds. Are you in good standing with the Lord today and with the members of His family so far as it lies in your power? Then I would encourage you to participate with us as we pass out the elements for the supper.